I won't rest until I have somehow converted Gil to, you know, what's going on in this text. He's the resistance right now. <laughs> and I, I will not have it. I will not. Right. Tear me down. So, Step on me, daddy. So part of what the Red Sublime, I think, is supposed <laughs> to do is like... Gil, Lillian, and Owen. Hey, y'all. Hello. Hey, everyone. What's up, everyone? This episode is part three of our What is Aesthetic series. For that series, we are returning to the Marxist philosopher Ernst Bloch and his 1972 essay, sorry for the long title, folks, Ideas as Transformed Material in Human Minds or Problems of an Ideological Superstructure, cultural heritage in parentheses, I don't know. <laughs> then, you, know you can find this essay in the collection, The Utopian Function of Art and Literature. It was originally published in Bloch's as yet, this really annoys me, as yet untranslated in English book, The Materialism Problem. This essay was written after Bloch's most famous work, The Principle of Hope, which we discussed back in episode 51 of our What is Utopia series. It seems that Bloch began writing this essay around 1936, actually, but it was only published after he was forced to leave East Germany because of his critical stance towards Stalinist policies and his unorthodox approach to Marxism. Reading this essay, you can see Bloch struggling with what he calls quote-unquote vulgar Marxism that separates and even fetishizes economics as a domain set apart from the rest of society. He writes, quote, it is only vulgar Marxism with his partiality to economics adapted from bourgeois economics, not from Marxism, which Bloch regards positively, that disregards the power of ideological infusion, even in the mode of economics itself, end quote. He continues on to castigate Karl Kotsky for thinking, quote, that the Reformation was nothing but the ideological expression of profound changes on the European wool market, and that he was, quote, just <laughs> making the same kind of rigid, narrow-minded, nonsensical claim as an idealistic bombast that views the Reformation as emanating only from the Germanic soul, end quote. Wow. I, now, I'll leave to the side whether this is actually fair to Kotsky, because that's not actually what's important for understanding this essay. But if listeners want to hear a sympathetic and generous engagement with the work of Kotsky, they should check out episode 44. Instead, Bloch's confrontation with what he calls vulgar Marxism is the staging ground for two central questions. First, what is the relationship between the production of art and its historical economic basis? Here, Bloch thinks vulgar Marxism fails to think through the complex mediations of the social totality. Second, how can the aesthetic productions of the past inform, proce inform processes of emancipation into the present, from the present, into the future? Here is important for Bloch that we do not have a mimetic relationship to art, as if all that were required was to read Proust, and then we would find the image of how society should be. Thank God, because I don't have time for Swan's Way. It's seven <laughs> volumes I recently found out. No one, everyone only reads the first volume, though. 
Instead, it will be important for Bloch that we are able to distinguish between the ideological distortions of the past that tend to legitimate the social roles of the master and servant or dominator and dominated, and distinguishing that from the, what he calls the utopian surplus that certain works of art retain that anticipate the free development of a classless society. In other words, the stakes here are nothing less than the conditions of possibility for the construction of a socialist heritage. Now, at this point, you might be asking how any of this has anything to do with either Marxism or aesthetics. My interpretation is that we can best understand the animating questions of this essay as expressed by the tension between two observations of Marx found in the 18th Brumaire and found in the 1857 introduction to the Grundrisse. In the 18th Brumaire, Marx famously writes, quote, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living, end quote. And in the 1857 introduction, Marx comments that, quote, the difficulty lies not in understanding that the Greek arts and epics are bound up with certain forms of social development. The difficulty, that they, the difficulty is that they still afford us artistic pleasure and that in a certain respect they count as a norm and as an unattainable model, end quote. How is it possible that Greek art can be distinguished from the nightmare of history as a type of surplus dream that pushes on to the future from beyond its context of historical genesis? We actually discussed this line from the 1857 introduction in episode 17 of our What is Dialectic series on Marx for those who are curious. Stuart Hall, in his fantastic essay on the method of the Grundrisse, finds Marx's thinking here elliptical and unfinished. The possibility of uneven and non-synchronous development as it concerns the superstructure of art and culture presents a puzzle for historical materialism. In an article on the relationship between Daniel Ben Said and Ernst Bloch, Filippo Minozzi argues that, quote, the value of Marxist thoughts is not the value of Marxist thought is not aesthetic but epistemological and methodological. The paradox is that past cultural and social forms do survive in a changing world and continue to affect the present even after the conditions of possibility have disappeared, end quote. Listeners will find the bibliographical information for these texts in the show notes. So returning to Bloch, I would like to conclude by giving a cursory overview of how Bloch answers the two questions I claim animate this complex and rich essay. To repeat, these questions are, what is the relationship between the production of art and its historical economic basis? And how can the aesthetic productions of the past inform processes of emancipation from the present into the future? To the first question, Bloch takes over Engels' notion of the reciprocal effect between the economic base and ideological superstructures, as stated in Engels' letter to Joseph Bloch, no relation to Ernst. <laughs> However, that confuses me all the time, but yeah. <laughs> However, Bloch does not only endorse Engels' ideas, but integrates them into an account of what Bloch calls the sublime feeling one experiences before certain forms of art. Bloch notes that this feeling, for example, emerges from the mediation of, quote, Athens as a place of commerce and as a place for the Parthenon. He distinguishes the sublime feeling from, quote, I love this line, the shock of the idealists and the pleasure of materialists when the economic reasons for the sonatas, tragedies, temples, etc. are revealed. The idealists want to disregard such mediation, while the materialists want to comprehend it 
from top to bottom, end quote. Bloch goes further and develops an account of aesthetic genius, as he calls it, that produces works of art that, though they are conditioned by their historical moment, also grasp and conserve an explosive ideological surplus that future generations can lay hold of in order to rip, quote, open the times, bring them to an end, bring them to that end where there would no longer be a mere past and its ideology, end quote. There's so much more to say about Bloch's surprising endorsement of aesthetic genius providing resources to explode the ideological limits of the present. But for now, it is important to understand that genius grasps an imminent tendency in one's moment and saturates it in the work of art. This leads to his answer for the second question, which concerns how to extract the surplus in art from its ideological conditions. Here, Bloch clearly thinks the Marxist work of historical materialism provides the hermeneutical tools for decoding the living tendency and process of emancipation that suffuses genius art forms. Perhaps surprisingly, he calls this a realist approach to art that has to be distinguished from quote-unquote mechanical realism, which tends to cut out the quote, time, process, and latency from the world, end quote, rather than grasping what in culture preserves, quote, the enormous arsenal of the possible, which is the correlate to the world that has not yet been thwarted, end quote. We can talk more about how this is possible and whether it is an attainable account of art, but it is clear that for Bloch, the works of people like Beethoven, Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy, to name a few, hit upon something true in both the yearning and constraints of human beings in a given society. And these yearnings have as their explosive content the possibility of overcoming false consciousness and domination. Bloch calls this anticipatory illumination, and he distinguishes it from the reified imitation of the past or, quote, the doubly reified term of commodity culture, end quote, insofar as it helps construct a socialist heritage that belongs to the not yet classless society at work. So I think those are two paths where we can begin our discussion. The idea of aesthetic genius and the possibility of utopian surplus that eradicates false consciousness. Introducing an essay of this sort is impossible for a podcast such as ours, so I would suggest that listeners read it for themselves. I've not even touched on his long coda at the end of the essay where he talks about the relationship between art, ecology, and how we live with nature. It is one of Bloch's, surprisingly, is one of Bloch's clearest and most lucid pieces of writing. Even if one ultimately disagrees with Bloch, I feel confident in saying that he is one of the most creative and, dare I say, genius interpreters of Marxism from whom I've, I've learned a great deal. With that, I will turn it over to you all. I guess I'll start by saying that I normally find uh, like the way the term like criticisms of vulgar Marxism to be kind of disingenuous and like not to be taken seriously, because oftentimes when people... Um, use the term vulgar, vulgar Marxism, what they're referring to is just Marxism, like any like, Marxism, <laughs> yeah. like to court. Right. And so like, I don't know, I think Gil and I've joked in the past about just like reclaiming like vulgar Marxism as a perfectly valid, uh, as a perfectly valid uh, position to take. But um, yeah, I think it's helpful maybe just to start with then what his, his critique of vulgar Marxism is. And it's not that like it makes that it focuses on economics or even makes economics primary. It's that kind of what you said in the introduction a little bit, that it inherits from bourgeois economics the tendency to isolate economics and to make it to isolate it from mm -hmm. the social totality and to make it this kind of independent um, independent domain. 
And so like, yeah, he thinks you can't really get a good account of how like that, about how the economy relates to other spheres like art or culture, because there's nothing really to explain in that. There's nothing to explain. There's nothing inherently, you know, real enough almost about cultural production to take seriously the problem of explaining how culture and the economy interface with one another. Right. So I think that's, I think that's a more fair, I think that's a more fair conception of like, vulgar Marxism, and it doesn't apply to, I don't know, the vast majority of Marxists that I, that I know now, at least. Although I do think this was a really strong tendency um, when he was writing. I mean, I have this um, kind of special interest in this phenomena of isolating the economy. I mean, I, that's like kind of reflected very strongly in my work. And shameless self-promotion, I am publishing an article on critical theory and this problem, the German tradition, hmm. soon. It was just accepting. Nice. But Congrats. having said that, like I think I think it's interesting that vulgar Marxism is the target here because I think this is identifiable, especially since there it's there is a neoclassical Marxism that is out there. So it, it shouldn't really surprise anybody if in nineteen thirty six somebody is saying that like there is this version of Marxism out there that is not ideal because this actually exists in several ways. So, um, and it's, and I think that the reason it's worth talking about is it's a, it's a problem. It's harder to identify and explain and get away from than it seems. So like the obvious response to block is like, yeah, I mean, not talking about culture is obviously a blunder, you know, um, mm -hmm. culture and the economy are connected, but like, there's something about that conceptual schema that itself I think is a problem. And I, I feel like that's what he's trying to point out. And the, obviously a neoclassical Marxism will have this problem. Um, and by that, I mean like there were socialists who thought, you know, you could have, you could say socialism will work on neoclassical terms. That was a thing. And then there's also like, there's also like heterodox Marxists, you know, heterodox economists that will isolate the economy and uh, try to modify, like kind of turn neoclassicism inside out. So there is this like real problem with like breaking from that, that framework. And I don't think it's something that just saying that like there's that the economy and I'm not saying you're saying this, Owen, mm -hmm. it's not something you can break away from by just saying don't be vulgar or assume the economy is always cultural or connected to other things. Mm -hmm. Because the reason I mentioned my own work is simply that I've discovered that it's actually anti-Marxists, like in the tradition of critical theory and usually neo-Vibarians, that reproduce this in fighting with Marxism, they sort of ironically reproduce the distinctions themselves. So like this inside outside of the economy dynamic, this mm. Um, mm -hmm. conceptual, the idea of spheres or the kind of conceptual distinctions in order to point. kind of supersede Marxism and be more sophisticated. In fact, these things just sort of like repeat them. Like you end up reproducing these, con this conceptual schism over time. So that's just to say that like, I think what he's saying is a real conceptual problem and it's not something that's easy to scoot away from. And even like the, the culturalists don't really succeed in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's quite clear that, you know, in this essay block, 
all at once. He doesn't want to clearly, you know, just read the economy out from culture. He's also trying not to construct like what you were describing, Lillian, of, of separate spheres. But, you know, it seems like what he's trying to explain is how it is possible for genuine contradictions to emerge in a particular society such that, you know, products of that society are certainly conditioned by, you know, um, you know, the economic, social conditions and relations, but also he thinks conserves a type of material that can allow us, uh, those of us in the present who want to inherit it, to educate ourselves, to form ourselves, to break away from what he thinks of as the, the ideological delusions and legitimations of our present, of you know, what it is freedom would consist in. And so he's trying to you know, develop this you know, really difficult account of how art you know, not only it doesn't simply express its historical conditions, but it's not completely disconnected from it. And so I think partially one way we can look at it is he is also trying to understand how even the past is not fully past, but contains, you know, seeds of the future. So he's trying to understand what he calls non-synchronicity in the present and how it is possible for a social order to both be historical, but also have material that allows us to think beyond it. There's a moment when he's talking about Beethoven, when he's like, you know, clearly the royal of the French Revolution, you know, contributed to, you know, Beethoven's creation. And that, you know, in that, in that music is something that's, you know, struggling to set itself free from its historical conditions. And so, yeah, I think maybe, you know, what I was saying is a long way of saying, you know, that complex idea of trying to describe conditioning and determination that isn't absolutely determinative. Mm. And he doesn't want to lose the historical materialism of understanding these social relations, but he doesn't want to think that those social relations simply express or reflect themselves in certain works of art. He doesn't think all, all art uh, actually meets the test of generating what he calls the utopian surplus. Yeah, could we like maybe try to unpack that concept a little bit because I have, I have a lot of trouble with this stuff. Um, I'm find I find it very difficult and opaque. Um, and there are like moments where like I think I get it like maybe analogically or very bl blurrily, <laughs> and I could use some help in clarifying a bit. And so like it seems like by utopian surplus he means something like the element in a cultural product that is not reducible to its conditioning by its historical moment. But I presume that but that could look very differently in different cases, I, I guess, right? Um, and like, there's a version of it that's something just like, I was reminded of a Beauvoir line that Owen brought up a couple episodes back, right? That like the answer is transcendence is pure movement. There's a, this is the kind of thing that we, we find in art but I don't know. I also then just kind of feel like I'm not grasping what's singular or specific about this and how it does have a kind of concrete relationship to things like economic relations of production or reproduction, uh, which is presumably necessary to retain the historical materialist perspective. Does that make some sense? 
I guess it like a, along those lines, I what really stood out to me was that he was kind of bringing back these ideas of the sublime mm-hmm. and of genius. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking like I know where I've heard that shit before, you know. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but there there's the 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 tradition of I don't know, critical metaphysics and I like idealism, like German idealism that starts trying to deal like handle these concepts of what it means to experience the sublime, what mean what it means for something to count as beautiful. And then the idea that genius is this particular transcendent quality. It's been a long time since I've read that stuff. But I thought it was kind of remarkable that in a sort of critique of a certain kind of historical materialism and that kind of those boundaries of categories and so on that we were talking about, like that he that he sort of takes recourse to these concepts and then calls it realism. And like, I would love to understand that better because this is not my um, bag, you know? And I think that um, the connection between those things is like, seems key to me. Yeah, I can say two quick things. Uh, One, to your question, Gil, about, you know, the surplus. So here's how I would understand the surplus. I take it that Part of what Bloch wants to understand with with art is that art always takes place under conditions of of constraint and limitation, and when it takes place, you know, even when it takes place in conditions, he talks about this when it seems like not much is happening, that it seems like there isn't the possibility for a revolutionary effort towards freedom. That these um these energies, he seems to think, you know, and this is partially strange in Bloch, but I think it's more plausible than it, it sounds in the language that he you know writes up which is what she thinks that you know as human creatures we have a tendency of wanting to surpass our limits surpass our constraints and that you know that experience comes from the frustration of being limited the frustration of you know living in a world in which you know we find ourselves hungry deprived of you know certain powers and capacities now the surplus i think he's trying to say is, is relatively incohate so one thing that i think is important here is this isn't about simply memory it isn't simply about seeing what people did before i think you know the the construction of the the full content the surplus he thinks that has to happen in the present of you know the revolutionary action of those who are trying to surpass you know what he thinks of as the conditions of class society so the surplus i i would read it as it's a type of yearning it's a it's a yearning for freedom that has not yet taken place in the world as we've known it but it offers a, a direction of how how it makes it possible for us to not only be blinded by or mystified by our present day reality, but how it's possible that people find the resources when they engage in revolutionary effort of this is the direction we're pointing in. And you know, the second thing I would say is about the stuff that he's doing about genius, I think is really important for his account, which is he thinks, and it's not guaranteed this will happen. He actually has a nice passage where like there are moments that have, you know, cried out for their genius to emerge mm-hmm. and no one showed up. Oh, and yeah, yeah. sometimes, you know, yeah. that happens. I'm not saying maybe we live in a moment like that, but <laughs> you know, he thinks that it there is no guarantee that aesthetic genius will emerge. and But what the aesthetic genius is, and the kind of answer what Lillian says, you have to look at, you know, he thinks of the world as composed of tendencies and processes that aren't simply available to the, the immediate empirical eye. That the aesthetic mm-hmm. genius grasps something that is not yet actual. 
And so his notion of realism, I think, is... And I think it's important to say, like, with our realism he's arguing against isn't necessarily the type of realism we find being, you know, um, theorized and talked about today. I think he is responding to a type of realism that he found in sort of Stalinism. And that is a realism that refuses to understand the world as these dynamic processes of, you know, tensions and limitations. And if you can't just see those tendencies, it is, you know, it's art, that's able to grasp, you know, what is possible in the world, yet you cannot simply look out and see that it is there. And so partially art plays this role of conserving that struggle such that it can be re-inherited in a way that, uh, as I was trying to suggest in my introduction, is not simply a nightmare on, on the brains of the living, but it is actually the very resource by which they can, you know, find motivation, understanding, but he goes deeper. He thinks that's truth right there. The truth is mm -hmm. emancipation mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we have so long been torn away from, have not yet seen. And he thinks art can play that role. Yeah, that's a that's a really helpful answer. Like, I think this is connected because I th what I'm about to say because I think um, if you look at like I've seen Kant all over the place here, and I'm surprised he didn't directly like engage with it more often. It doesn't have to, but I was surprised um, <clears throat> because that's on the production side, like. How does some cultural surplus like be produced? But there was also really interesting um, resonances with Kantian aesthetics, which I'll sit talk about in one second. But uh, in the reception of art, not just its production, but in the way that it is received and experienced. And I was surprised that you know there was all those references to the sublime and to to genius, and not a lot of talk about the experience of beauty, uh, because I thought that what he was describing as like work that resists schematism. Right? He talks about he uses this language of like. You know, truly great art that is a, that is a, that perform, that has this utopian function that is a work of genius. Like it cannot be schematized, meaning it cannot just be fit right. into some pre-existing concept you have of what its meaning is, what it's doing, what its significance is. Like at a, a given moment, you know that was Kant's theory of the beautiful, right? Which is that it it's a it provokes a play of the faculties. You can't just take something you <laughs> see or experience with your senses and just fit it, slot it right in into a particular concept that allows you to understand it. And so, like that would explain also. Like one way of differentiating just ideological drivel that's purely a product of its time, like that might be pleasing, but it's not going to provoke the experience of beauty, right? It's not going to, it cannot provoke like an experience of the beautiful in which there's like that arresting play of the faculties. I, I just thought, yeah, maybe the kind of, I don't know, to answer the question a little bit from the other side of like the experience of art rather than. He uses the language of the red sublime. So he, he, yeah, that's he, so sick. By the way, though, that incredible is incredible yeah, about awesome. Block. Like on the one hand, I get why people like throw out Block because it's like warts and all. Block is a communist through and through, and so he mm -hmm. thinks clearly the experience of the beautiful is the experience of the possibility of a classless society. Mm -hmm. But he even goes further. He says the classless society—that's just the beginning. That is just the 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 beginning of mm -hmm. what a free develop, development would be, and mm -hmm. that you know, he seems to think that you know what our experience of beauty would be would be you know the release from uh, all of these these you know falsities and distortions, and it is a glimpse. He called you know he uses the language of anticipatory illumination of you know, what actually a mediated comprehensive relationship with you know, my fellows with technology 
we can get to the weird nature stuff if we want to, what that would be such that I do not experience myself as constantly torn in different directions. That I actually understand myself as, this is how he ends the principle of hope, as the root of the world, as the source of you, know, that it's action and production and reproduction. But that's like, it's so crazy that he's just like, yeah, the sublime, <laughs> it's red. You know, in, in so far as it militates against the, the taken-for-granted capitalist society of class domination. Well, there, there is a, not to spend, I'll just last thing I'll say about Kant, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but there is a kind of utopian um, emancipatory reading of even that break, that, that uh, play of the faculties, which is that it, like, arrests the dominance of, like, the intellectual over the material and over, of the material classes, or the classes that work with material, the working class, and the the class that dominates them from intellectual or whatever. I mean, it's a bit of a stretch, but I do think there's a, there's an interesting, there's a little, you can have a, there's a little communist way of interpreting even just the, that, that moment. But yeah, that's this is falling this, right up from our con episode. So certainly not going as hard as the reds, as the red, as the red sublime. I mean, I do think that that is the right reading of this though. I mean, like it, it was like, I thought it was really striking that, when he says things like the economy and the superstructure together make human beings again in the totality of the subject-object relationship without the undialectical antagonisms derived from abstraction, he starts saying things like the problem with these abstractions, when we say things like economy and culture or base and superstructure or ideology and reason or something, is that like what he wants to do is kind of find, I got the sense he wanted to find a third term to kind of transcend these. And like, I think mm -hmm. that that, like that's why I was bringing up this conceptual problem because he thinks that there's something, this experience of the sublime, it can't like, I mean, think about it. You can't reduce that kind of con experience to ideology. It's a category or it's not the same thing, mm -hmm. like almost by definition. So it's like he wants to try to get people to see that there's this other creative mechanism that has been um, eluded. Is that like the right way to put it? Because that is an emancipatory reading that like there is this moment of that meaning that cannot be caught in the bounds of these particular kinds of concepts and not necessarily the idea of the beautiful, but the red sublime. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to me, but I feel like I'm not convinced and I don't know why. Um, and I, and I guess it's, I guess it might be that I wasn't convinced that he really superseded that sort of conceptual problem in its way, in a way he tried to find a way out of it through aesthetics. Mm. His way, find his way out of what problem? The problem of like thinking of these oh, like conceptual zones. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like. And that this problem of vulgarity is the product of either having them in the first place or in a more traditional Marx, a more Hegelian Marxist way. And I think he alludes to that. I think that's another interpretation, thinking of them undialectically, that these are abstractions that are not animated by the real movement of history. Mm -hmm. But then instead of kind of approaching it in that way, like the Hegelian way, he alludes to it, but then he also kind of wants to insist that Maybe that's it, but we have to arrive at this other place that actually sublates these conceptual antagonisms 
Um, and the concern of re reason mm. is in some way a real concern with aesthetics. And so I'm torn in between thinking that it's like a, a in good Hegelian fashion, what is rational is really the overcoming of, you know, the, Alf the Aufhebung of all this. Mm -hmm. Or something like he's introducing a third term, like a wild card into our emancipatory process. That's, I guess that's a question. Yeah. Like what, what is he doing? And, the, and maybe the bottom line is like, what is the role of aesthetics? Like, what is he trying? That might be a way of summarizing it. One way I try to orient my way around this text of, you know, what problem does it, does he take himself to be solving? I really like how you said the experience of sublime, it can't just be ideology because clearly what he thinks the experience of sublime is not a ready-made cat category that allows us to make sense of the world. It challenges the very, you know, categories, presuppositions, ideas we have of what is natural, just, um, inescapable of the world. And yet, because this world has not yet come to be, it is not, you know, it's easy for me to say sublime, but I think, you know, what's, we, what's interesting about us doing this was aesthetics, you know, series is when we're talking about this, we can't just tell you what the, the, the sublime mm -hmm. is. We probably can't even tell you what works of art to look at in order to find this. We, we probably would have some ideas. I think, you know, you look at some of the culture production from the time of the Soviets and some of it, I think we've talked about in different episodes of this podcast, that it lights something in us. You, you see something that, you know, could have been and yet no longer is. And, you know, and so that is there. But I think the problem he's trying to solve is this, given that this world of the class of society has never yet been seen, how is it, given that we are also conditioned by history, we draw from history our ideas, our understandings, you know, our knowledge, how is it that we can inherit history that doesn't commit us to simply re-naturalizing or re-entrenching what dominates us? And so he's actually trying to do this very strange thing of finding an alternative inheritance that opens the way for something radically different. And yet, that alternative inheritance cannot be something that's separated from the very historical material processes that have made us, that have made us who we are. You're not going to find it by uploading your consciousness to the realm of the platonic forms. You know, he also hates <laughs> Plato He because he hates the whole idea of everything's anamnesis. He's like, no, 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 no. We're not doing right. remembering here. That's foreclosure. That's, yeah, that's foreclosure for him. And so he's trying to say, so there must be other possibilities born by the material process that aren't simply a re-entrenchment of the present, but can give us the material to experience something else. Yeah. I, there was like res real resonances of, um, I don't know, like, you know how Benjamin talks about these kind of historical certain moments of failed struggle in the past or failed revolution in the past as being like a historical index as carrying more possibility than what was realized and the importance of like contemporary emancipatory politics being in like the importance for emancipatory politics in the present of taking up those lost futures from the past. You think he seems to think that art has a distinct contribution to make alongside that. And he cites Benjamin on that. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Cause he's ultimately, he's fighting his, what he's calling historicism here, right? Like historicism, yeah. which he thinks incarcerates history in the past. Right. And that it incar incarcerates history in, in the things that, happened to have happened, things that unfolded, right? Um, and he sees art as having a unique way of, like, sticking with this kind of car car carceral language, of liberating from the past, like, potential that's trapped within it. That, yeah, and I, I think in a similar way to how Benjamin described, like, 
the failure of the German Revolution. I also think it's where maybe this this will help. He also thinks that art can play a function of interrupting our tendency to think that the world is something that we should contemplate rather than the world is something that we have to act in and act upon. And so, you know, his issue with like historicism is the idea of turning art into simply an object of contemplation as if it is, you know, something set apart from me that I, I, I gaze on. He thinks that at least genius forms of art can have he loves this language of the explosion, these explosive contents that have not yet been discharged by the past that incites us to actions. And I think one way of looking at some of Marx's historical and 18th Brumaire, yes, he's like, look at the tradition of dead weighing like a nightmare. But he also thinks, well, movements of, of struggle and revolution often tend to return to the past to seek out forms, mm -hmm. motivations, senses of justification, etc. And sometimes that can limit the, those struggles. But, you know, Bloch, at least his gambit is, but that is also the way towards, you know, a new form of struggle to establish a society of full emancipation. Yeah. I mean, look at the French, the French Revolution in Rome. I, I guess it's more, I guess it's more like obvious to me how though the the kind of activating and like liberating the potentialities of past failed struggle, like I don't know, that makes it's just more intuitive to me. I guess I hate the word intuition, but um, I guess it's more like intu intuitive to me than listening, going back and and like you know, he, some of the, some of the artists he referenced, which I love like Dostoevsky and Beethoven and whatever, but I, I guess it's harder for me to see, okay, like what does it mean to act, to allow that like old, works of art, great works of art to activate present struggles for freedom or the, I don't, you know, it's, that's a really simple, basic, that's a very basic question, but, I, but the other like practical question that I'm left with is that, you know, he's not saying that all art does this or can do this? Yes. In he doesn't think Dante that, does. He thinks Dante is pretty trapped in its <laughs> in, in its historical milieu, which is wild. Yeah, I, I was surprised yeah. he came for Dante. But <laughs> came for Dante. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, William Perry Roberts. Critical support for Dante. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. And also for the Dante heads out there. Right. Where again, like he points out that like you can see, he says like the sort of Marxist movement is one that will gleefully kind of go into the storage house of all human cultural production and but he says you know not take everything right leave the stuff that the mm -hmm. moths have eaten mm -hmm. and i'm like how do we dis distinguish because i don't know always how to do that or, or like yeah. you know when marx is like the real question is how is it possible for like ancient greek art still to speak to us today and i'm like does it doesn't speak to me all that much if i'm being real with y'all i don't know am i missing it i might be a moron right Presumably, yeah, but you there's... hate art. We've been over this. <laughs> yeah, I know. The red sublime can't touch you. <laughs> the red sublime. I'd love. I'd love to be overwhelmed by the red sublime. No, of course, art works like uh, destroy me sometimes, right? But I'm not sure that this is something that I understand clearly enough to unlock its political significance. Or again, like Eroica by Beethoven, beautiful. I'm not sure how it's not actually overdetermined in a certain kind of way, even if I buy the claim that Bloch makes about like cultural genius being singular and irreplaceable. If there weren't a Beethoven, the 1800s wouldn't have produced another guy who made Beethoven stuff, right? Like I'm with you. But you know, Marx also says that the revolution, social revolution has to draw its poetry from the future. And if 
Block's point is that like there is the future also already in the art from the past. Like I guess sure, but now I'm not sure what we're talking about. Does that make sense? I like that reading actually. Yeah. Thanks, you. I'm going to give some critical support to Block here and all that. Yeah. No, no. I I actually I but I my I spontaneously agree with what Block is saying. I just don't know how to explain it. You know what I mean? Like that's that's my problem. (laughs) I mean, I feel like that's a metaphor for the whole thing. We spontaneously have an experience of the sublime. Yeah. No, it's certainly not. It's not immediately discursive and all Very that. difficult yeah. to articulate. Well, that's, that's, that. that is a problem with, like, yeah, <laughs> talking about his, anyways. Yeah, Adorno has a quip that it, it is actually quite clear he didn't mean it as a compliment of Block, though people read it as that great Blockian music, and he's talking about his writing style and all of that. <laughs> um, so never forget that Block is, you know, he is very German in his training. You know, he's kind of, you know, one of the last, like, you know, polymaths and all of that. So when he's thinking of aesthetics and all of that, he's not simply thinking of like a work of art you see in a museum. In fact, you know, he's like, no, 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 no. Don't like, reduce this to the contemplative mm-hmm. experience of going to a museum. He's thinking um, in terms of bildung. He's thinking in terms of education. So that line you were quoting, Gil, that's the line where he, his, his, one of his mm-hmm. favorite phrases is that Latin phrase, doctor spes, educated yeah. hope. And so this type of education mm-hmm. is not simply, you know, uh, look, there is there are long passages. Very strange. He starts talking about science and all of that. He's like, yes, you know, and, you know, the accumulation of knowledge of empirical science is obviously incredibly important. And all of that. Block is talking about an education, not just of you know, our cognitive faculties, but our education of our desires. But I mm-hmm. think he's even going further. Our education of what he, where he thinks the world is going, and that you know there is a type of a redemptive pulse to this of understanding that even though hitherto it seems as if class society is always what, you know, what has been and what will be that, you know, you're going to find that there is an undercurrent, not just a struggle or resistance. I'm not a fan of resistance anymore, but you know, an undercurrent of emancipation, uh, an undercurrent of like, that is what has been drawing us together to the possibility of really expanding our human and natural powers. So this is also about a type of education. If you take something like ideological mystification, false consciousness to be a serious impediment to certain social and practical actions, certainly not the only one, there are objective impediments as well. He thinks that, you know, no, we need also a cultivation of ourselves that will militantly commit ourselves to this and follow through what that, you know, that historical tendency that is there. He calls it, you know, the knowledge of what is missing. And he thinks without that, then where is where's the, the direction supposed to come from of emancipation? So he might think hmm. the poetry of the future, the problem with that is that seems like it's still abstract as if it is a miracle we have to um, wait for. But he's trying to say, like, no, Marx is understanding that that poetry of the future isn't something that is separate from the poetry, the art, the aesthetics that, you know, we have inherited. And reading Marx, this is a guy who also loved aesthetics, he was well-read in literature, et cetera, and clearly drew something from it. And so the poetry of the future isn't just like a miracle that enters in unexpected. Mm-hmm. I get it. Every gap is the straight gate through which the Messiah might come through. That's a little Benjamin joke for <laughs> the real heads out there. But Black <laughs> thinks he's coming up with a more convincing account that, no, the future is already here with us, and that's what makes right. it possible. Yeah. I, I like this point about educating desires and 
and even like sensibility. That's why I made that reference to aesthetic education. We talked about this a little bit in a in the other aesthetics episode on, on Schiller. We we're reading Schiller because Schiller thought that this was the ultimate aesthetic aesthetic education, like formation, um, was like an essential ingredient in any like meaningful, like deep political alteration or transformation in political culture and political form. What's your beef with uh, resistance? Oh, well, well, the mm. libs took it over for one. That's oh, yeah, that's, yeah, hashtag, <laughs> hashtag resist. Like, like the, it's, it's, yeah, it's just having <laughs> a bad taste. Oh, wow. of, I, I just think of resistance it, libs. That, the second, yeah. that must be part of it. That must be part of it. <laughs> I think the other I, it, issue I have with it is it becomes, you know, I try not, I'm trying not to throw around the word fezization too much, but it, you know, it becomes a type of fez where the idea is the nobility is simply resisting and the resistance will never stop because the thing you're resisting will never be overcome. Yeah. And maybe there's a covert desire for it never to go away. So that there's always, it's always there to be resisted. Yeah. And I, I've even like, you know, broached this idea and I, I've seen this tendency because I like to talk about emancipation. I like to talk about what it would mean to be, you know, freed from certain constraints so that we can choose the constraints that we want for our actions. And I've received pushback on the idea that, of course, emancipation is impossible. What's it, what is important is simply generating resistances against the status quo, which is also mm -hmm. a way of also affirming and reaffirming the status quo quo as you ineliminable permanent etc and what block does is actually what he thinks is permanent what he calls indelible is mm -hmm. this you know, tendency that. towards emancipation that's attempting to to you know surge forth and he's trying to answer he even uses this very strange sentence of you know, how can like you know, the utopia emerge from the dung of ideology but he thinks the flower is emancipation it's not the resisting of of the, the brutal soil that can never bring about anything new. So that's my, my issue with resistance. But also the easy answer is hashtag resist. <laughs> it's also just like hostile to mass politics. Yeah, maybe now that I think about it, maybe resistance is like constitutively limiting, a constitutively like limiting concept. Like maybe we really could never have done that much with that concept. Wow. Yeah. Well, that was R.I.P. Foucault. No, that was the. That was the. <laughs> right. history no. Well, didn't mean to take a pot shot at him. <laughs> in the history of sexuality, Cheap though, shot. Cheap get power shot. I mean, there is something everywhere. important about. At least Foucault had some criteria, for like for like what constitutes like good re like well no he doesn't say good resistance but what resistance might look like if it's successful like he has that thing about that weird shit about Paris at the end yeah. or, um, oh, yes. or, or like basically just to be vulgar about it, like a very Nietzschean, like art of my life, fashioning myself. So basically like extreme individualism and narcissism can be like good for you. <laughs> If you want. I mean, I, I guess. <laughs> I I'm stumbling. I'm fucking, I'm really fucking up right now. Okay. But, the, but I think the more important point is like, if you did like resistance can't be a virtue in itself. Cause you have to have some criteria for like what makes you successful or like doing a good job. And if you're not doing a good job or you're not successful. And I don't mean that moralistically. I literally just mean like, you know, are you changing the conditions that are oppressing you? Um, and if not, you should probably do something else. Not, like you should be a better person. Yeah. You should probably do mass politics. You know, and that's hard. Like I also like, you know, I, I appreciate that you, that there are many other things to do and you may not find that possible, but you see my point. Like it's not resistance. 
if it just is you living your everyday life. But what's that? What I really like about that point about you know you have to have some criteria. You know, so that this is me. Like you know, I I feel like I won't rest until I have somehow converted Gil to you know what's going on in this text. He's the resistance right now, <laughs> and I I will not have it. I will not right. tear me down. So, Step on me, daddy. So part of what the Red Sublime, I think, is supposed <laughs> to do is like, you know, Block is also asking if we do live in these conditions of class domination and all that, that tends to frame what we think we want, what we think is, you know, the conditions of success, etc. How, where do we get, if not simply abstractly, the normative criteria by which we understand what, you know, what transformation we want, but what would make transformation um, successful? And those criteria are not simply there if you just reflect enough on the inside. You know, again, RIP the philosophers, that's what we do. He thinks <laughs> that that has to be constructed from the practical work of engaging with this alternative heritage, which means I think his way of trying to figure out how to access the ideological surplus, never forget, he is still a Marxist at the end of the day. And so he thinks, no, the theory of historical materialism that understands these contradictions in you know, economic relations through the social totality, that is where you, you can start to look to see what he thinks of as these anticipatory illumination that you know, through struggle can be increasingly concretized, made fuller and concrete, such that we don't have to rely on the language we've used over these past couple episodes, abstract moralizing of what a good society mm -hmm. will, will be. He thinks it's born within, and this is almost a classic Marxist point, it's already born within who and how we are in our society. It's you know, the task of elucidating it that he's trying to argue for, that he thinks art can at least play a role. Okay, I feel like the more we discuss this, the more Hegelian he becomes. And like that was where I was driving my earlier question is like, is it a third thing or is it the Hegelian thing? And I think it's the Hegelian thing, right? <laughs> that, um, you know, that the sublime is. is like when you make someone feel like you, they have transcended that contradiction. They're looking at it. They're listening to it. They're experiencing it. And they're like, wow, all the things have been superseded at this time. At least that is how I feel. Maybe not in yeah. fact. And that's like the window to the future. He has a quick line about Hegel. Like, Block usually has nothing but scorn for Hegel. He's like, oh, my God, this constant recollection and recomprehension and all of that. But, he's like, but no. He thinks there is a utopian element to Hegel that he thinks Hegel refused. He didn't go all mm -hmm. the way. But, you know, he thinks the, the Hegel of, you know, you know, increasing comprehension of the mediations of ourselves. He's like, Hegel, I think for him, Hegel is a genius. Hegel is one of the geniuses, I think. Mm. Yeah. That, you know, captured mm -hmm. it even though there's all of this dross <laughs> of the anamnesis and recollection. He's like, we could have gotten rid of that. <laughs> No more Owl Minerva. <laughs> there was the one line where he's, I mentioned this in our little group chat because I, like I said, I'm, I am dumb as rocks and don't understand art or anything about aesthetics. So this series is always tough for me and I'm sorry and I appreciate all of your indulgences. But there was a bit where he was saying something and drawing a series of parallels, explaining by, by way of trying to illustrate what's happening in the sort of progression of these different stages of how superstructural cultural production has developed on top of the sort of uh, economic revolutions of the bourgeoisie. And he's like, yeah, you know, we get, this is how we get from, from Bach to Beethoven or from Kant to Hegel. 
And I was like, oh, I see it. I see it. Because if it, or, or, or sorry, it was Mozart from Mozart to Beethoven. Right. And it's and yeah, it's like, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever listened to Mozart, but like I. Oh, my God. This again. You don't like Bach. You don't like Mozart. We got it. They suck. They're boring. <laughs> There's no, you don't like there's, Bach, no, eh? there's like, no, 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 the thing about like, no, they're both, the thing that's interesting about both of them aesthetically is that they're, they're basically perfect, right? That there's like, they're unimprovable structurally and formally. Hmm. Um, Bach is like ma music as just pure mathematics, as pure mathesis, right? Yes. Or, and like, if, and if you listen to like uh, Mozart, it is like the whole of modern melody and thematic is like, mirror sheen there and it's not fucking interesting and if you listen to Beethoven mm. it's like it is thunderstorms it's violence and like and an, an intensity mm. with an intensity that like you just cannot have with the formal perfection of the earlier work and I think there's something in that analog we're like yeah and con it's kind of nice you know don't worry about it and then you get to the phenomenology of spirit yeah. and now we have the fucking terror right and this is mm -hmm. the progress that just hit me, or I liked it. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I think the last thing I'll say, I, you know, Gil, look, you might be an aesthetics guy yet, which is- I'm I a think classically from... trained musician. I've written oh. more music than you people have forgotten, okay? You oh, don't wow. need to talk. Okay. Oh, <laughs> shit. Oh, that's, that's, that's actually, oh, right. I was actually like, I'm, I'm saying that to, to the listeners. But... I'm saying that to the listeners, because every time I make oh, okay. a comment about not liking art, a hundred people on Twitter who don't understand what a joke is at me and they're like, oh, <laughs> this guy doesn't. Fair enough, fair enough. Get but a grip. The, the thunderclouds and all of that, I think this is the last thing I'll say about Block. Whatever the Red Sublime is, it, I don't think it's harmony. I don't think it's a sense of no, peace. No, God, no. It is, it is discordant. It is raucous. And that's what he's trying to listen for. Mm -hmm. You know, he's trying to listen for, you know, the magma and turmoil under what seemed to be peaceful, natural social relations. Yeah, I mean, every time I transcend a contradiction, that's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> that is the feeling. It's like, oh my God, it's oh, so God, loud. <laughs> yeah, it's a, lot. it's a lot. It's like yeah, it's like the terror in my brain. Yeah, now just you know, inject into the world of communist revolution. <laughs> Done. All right, that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Andre Eilers, Lata Tenjik, Miguel Famina, Daniel... Daniel Milligan, Darren Poynton, Ali Nezhadsavi, Dan Delayo, Bread456, James Roden, DS, Max, Alfredo Ramirez, Randy Connolly, Robert Von Zitzowitz, Alan Clark, Francis Halsell, Michael Sapir, Clinton, Russell Pryor, and Sabrina. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes, bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. 
Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care.